Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Today, we're talking about modern threats to journalists and why the online environment is also a hostile environment. My guest today is Deborah Haynes, foreign affairs editor of Sky News and the host of its recent podcast series, Into the Grey Zone, which takes a look at some of the most striking examples of assassinations, cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns. From the WannaCry ransomware attack on the NHS in 2017 to the Salisbury Novichok poisoning a year later, these covert operations are part of a much broader spectrum of grey zone attacks. Not black and white, but taking place on an invisible battlefield. For journalists, well, they're very much on the front lines of this information war zone and putting themselves in harm's way. Deborah talks about her own experience in the grey zone, where she has received trolling and accusations of being an actor of the state because of her work. Through her series, she has discovered that the threats to journalists and news organisations manifest themselves in a variety of ways. We'll talk more about the potential perils of story leaks and job offers, and what newsrooms can do to be on the safe side. That's all to come, but first, this. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk provides a jobs board with the latest opportunities from around the media industry. Our job of the week is a co-editor position at The New Internationalist. For this position and all the rest on our jobs board, head over to www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Deborah, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for yourself at the moment? So today is a glorious day because obviously the schools are back. It's my first day off in in months um, because obviously I've been working on this project and I was looking back, I basically haven't had a weekend off since October. Um, so I've just worked every day pretty much. I took Christmas Day and Christmas Eve and Boxing Day off, but basically pretty much worked flat out and my kids are very resentful of this fact. <laughs> Well, we can definitely see the fruits of your labour, shall we say, Deborah. You've been um, very busy with the with the podcast Into the Grey Zone. Talk to me about where that idea came from. I think it's because of my background. So I, I spent a lot of time in Iraq. I was the Iraq correspondent for The Times. Um, and before that, I was working in Iraq um, for AFP, Agence France Presse. Like I would do stints there for them. I was based in Geneva, but I would, I would go there as a civilian. I'd experienced what it's like to be in a country where there is no guaranteed security. And it really makes you understand just how everything else really doesn't matter, like schools, health, economy. If you haven't got security, kind of everything else is secondary. And I used to come back to the UK and sort of see our, you know, incredible country built on this democracy and these freedoms that we kind of take for granted that were obviously built on the back of all that happened in the Second World War and then the institutions and the rules that were created after that to benefit democracies. And, you know, since the end of the Cold War, there has really, relatively speaking, uh, in Western Europe, at least, um, relative peace. I mean, obviously, we've had Northern Ireland, but in terms of just an existential threat, I really felt this complacency. And then obviously, we had the events in 2016 in the United States with the election there, all the kind of thoughts about is the meddling going on in the Brexit referendum in terms of information campaigns. And you really felt yourself as a journalist um, 
as if you're kind of on the front line of an information war. I think it became really apparent um, in 2018 with the um, the Salisbury attack. And that was really a, an attack on the UK, obviously with a chemical weapon, the nerve agent Novichok. Um, but then the, the disinformation that followed and the way that actually journalists would be targeted too by this disinformation, you'd be accused of being a stooge or of, of misrepresenting facts. Um, and it was a hostile environment. It really felt like a hostile environment. And um, and I'd go to these sort of briefings at, you know, with defence experts and security experts who absolutely understand the nature of the threat, but the language they would use, um, things like hybrid warfare and sub-threshold threats and uh, unconventional conflict, and it just doesn't penetrate with the public. And so I really felt that there was a gap there because your house isn't obviously burning down. People aren't so aware to it unless it pops up it flares up with a Salisbury or a cyber attack Mm. so when we think about the gray zone not the podcast but the notion really what we're talking about is the murky and covert kind of methods to states used to sow disinformation and provoke international conflict yeah well not just states yeah the gray zone is uh, an area where anything can be used as a weapon and yes states will use different types of tactics, you you can call it political warfare or the sort of Soviet era active measures. You know, it's all about people's minds and perceptions. And you can use um, information to do this to, you know, maybe distort something or leak something that will have an effect. But also it's, you know, using academia, you know, maybe coercing or corrupting academics to not talk about a certain topic or to, to talk about a certain topic in a certain way to influence, again, influence minds to perhaps buy a stake in a company and therefore use that company, again, maybe to lobby government for certain laws or to put some sort of spyware in that equipment if they're building something for a piece of critical national infrastructure in a way to undermine the target society. And the whole point is to do it in a way that is ambiguous, is invisible, um, is deniable, is maybe having an effect without people realising until it's too late. And that's part of it. But that's not everything. That's the really murky part of it. But then you also have sort of at the sharper end, the use of proxy forces to be able to have a military effect. Iraq is a great example of a country that is a proxy battlefield between the US and Iran. But then also assassinations, that, is, that also takes place in the grey zone, you know, deniable assassination attempts like the attack on the Skripals. Uh, so it's a whole spectrum. But the point is to have an effect in another country um, without tipping that country into wanting to retaliate and especially not retaliate um, with, with military force. So when did the notion of a grey zone first really come on your radar? It was when Ukraine happened. There were various contacts of mine that I um, turned to for, you know, who are deep experts in this kind of warfare, because I'm, I'm just a journalist. <laughs> just a journalist. More, don't, don't, don't sell yourself short, Deborah. Come on. I'm <laughs> just a journalist. Um, well, I am. But they would talk about things like, you know, they would use language like constant competition and, uh, and hybrid warfare and unconventional warfare. And, you know, I was at the Times uh, at the time, and whenever I report, you have to make sure that your reporting is accessible, that even if you're trying to grapple with a subject that is slightly obscure language, you need to be able to break it down and 
you need to understand it yourself to be able to explain it. And so I used to hate that word, like hybrid warfare. Like, what the hell, what the hell does that mean? Um, <laughs> and constant competition. I could see it's really important. It is that sense of great, you know, of countries competing and wanting to win. And obviously, when you win, you set the rules. So it, it really does matter. But how to translate that in a way that um, actually means something? And people do use that language, grey zone. They talk about the grey zone, grey zone warfare. Um, and it just, I really like the idea of it, the idea of this gray zone between war and peace. That is something that people can understand. Mm -hmm. And if you then talk about how it's a place where harm happens and then actually draw on examples like the Salisbury poisonings, like hack and leaks that have happened, like like cyber attacks, you know, the WannaCry attack that hit the NHS, make it tangible and then people will understand it better and then be more aware of it. Yeah. And obviously you've got nine really strong examples running through the series on on the, the nature of these uh, different grey zones. How long has this really been your focus and how long have you been working on this podcast? That's a really good question. The idea of it, as in the idea of wanting to do something that um, helps to translate what this grey zone is, it's been niggling me for, you know, I'd say about two or three years but then at Sky, um, we would sort of encouraged to come up with ideas for podcasts. And it just seemed that it would be perfect for a podcast because I'm I'm a, a newspaper journalist kind of by background, really. The majority of my career has been spent either as a newspaper journalist or a news agency journalist. And so I've only moved into television a couple of years ago, really. That, that distinction between TV and, and print is very old now. Everybody is kind of multimedia podcast seemed a really good idea of a, of a medium in which you could go into depth on a subject it didn't have to be just a three-minute thing there would be a risk that it might be quite flat if you just wrote about it but to have the voices and to bring in the sound and the go to the places would help to bring it alive so yeah so I kind of suggested it I think back in 2019 actually um, was when I first sort of suggested the idea and we had the first kind of conversations and that the hope had been to actually turn it around and uh, and produce it by June of last year but obviously the pandemic happened so everything got delayed um, and so very much I did this podcast with um, Chris Scott he produced and edited it and so he is responsible for all the amazing sound quality um, and the feel of it so yeah very much this is a, a team game we both laughed and cried together <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Scottish uh, countryside episode where you can hear all the nature in the background that's a complete polar opposite to what you might expect the the front lines of this information warfare to look like oh cool that's, that was exactly the, the effect we wanted so I'm glad that worked <laughs> cool um, you, you yourself have talked about just how broad this spectrum is. How did you begin to make sense of that? The way that people fight wars is changing. I mean, the militaries are having to grapple with the fact that the ability to use data is becoming so important that it's almost making a lot of like legacy equipment redundant unless you're able to incorporate data onto the platforms. And so I was already thinking a lot about that. And then... Um, I kind of became caught up in a grey zone attack, which I do cover in the podcast. It's a charity, actually, but it kind of works like a think tank called the Institute for Statecraft. Um, and it's run by a man called Chris Donnelly, who is like a deep expert in um, in kind of in, in Russian warfare. Um, he was a, a deep Soviet expert um, and then a deep Russia expert after the collapse of the Soviet Union and worked at the Ministry of Defence and did a lot of work with NATO. 
and is a really well-regarded expert. And he set up, after he left government, he set up this institute and it had a programme called the Integrity Initiative, um, which I hadn't heard about uh, until after that, hadn't appreciated what it was. He was concerned about you know, Russian disinformation, but he had this kind of Integrity Initiative programme to counter disinformation and call it out. And the Institute for Statecraft got hacked, their files got hacked, and then leaked online on this website and it was the leakers kind of described themselves as being part of the hacktivist group anonymous but there was no proof that they were really that that they were really them and um no one seems to believe that that was the case they think the suspicion is that it was some kind of state job potentially the russian state but they've denied that so nothing's been confirmed but anyway the point is this hack and leak happened and they leaked all these files onto the internet. And then the Russian TV channel RT and the website Sputnik just started pumping out loads of stories about this, describing this shadowy influence operation run by the British state, kind of making it sound like it was this sort of top secret, deep spy kind of thing. And the leaks named like individuals from the Institute, but then it also like used names that they had on the files of like, you know, pretty much it seemed like everyone they'd ever been in touch with and then implying that they were somehow involved. And a number of journalists' names were leaked as part of that, and that included mine. And so people seemed to think that because I had been leaked in this way, that I was somehow part of it, which just wasn't true. And it was really uncomfortable. Suddenly waking up one day and having these allegations, it'd be like hashtag integrity initiative, kind of accusing me of being a stooge. That was a big instigator in wanting to do this. But the more she reported on the leak and the Institute, the more it drew allegations of her being part of the state from different parts of the internet. And we hear more about that in episode three of the podcast. Let's go and take a listen to Deborah talking about the attention her work was receiving. I decided to do a television and online report for Sky News on the whole suspected hack and leak. But this triggered more false claims about me being an integrity initiative stooge including from this YouTuber, who describes himself as a journalist and podcaster. Hi everyone, I've got a bit of an update on the Integrity Initiative. Uh, Sky have written an article on it. I know, I was shocked as well. But look who it's written by. It's written by Deborah Haynes, who is mentioned in the files, in the Integrity Initiative files, as being a member of the UK cluster. Come on, this is laughable. I mean, seriously, this is laughable. Don't you care about your... Do you have no journalistic integrity at all? Foreign Affairs Ever Editor for Sky. Then, on the 25th of March, the suspected hack and leakers uploaded their seventh and final tranche of files with this message. Greetings. We are anonymous. Having found that Sir Alan Duncan and Frau Deborah Haynes intend to keep on misleading the international community, lie to members of the UK Parliament and feed falsehood to the media, we have again decided to break silence to protect the informational environment in civilised countries. No one serious believed that it was true. It was just it was just a bit nutty. Integrity is really important, actual you know, personal integrity and credibility and honesty um and so to have an and being impartial and to have those values kind of questioned by these people that they don't know who I am they don't they've not they've done no research whatsoever 
and there's no comeback for them. They just do it and that's it. I mean, what am I supposed to do? How can I possibly? So I felt the best way to push back is doing what I'm doing and kind of calling it out and saying this is this behavior is wrong. Yeah, I actually think that's that's one of the, the tips that came across. Well, tips or one of the key highlights that came across in one of the episodes was that the best way to combat disinformation is with your own proactive work against it. Was that part of your thinking at the time? Yeah, no, it really is. It's it's about speaking to the various experts who are involved in this. Having like evidence-based facts and calling out lies are the best way to expose the whole information space is so murky. It's definitely not black and white. It's very grey. Not every the hostile tweet has been launched by some kind of hostile foreign state. Uh, you know, individuals do it too. You know, people use information as a weapon for all sorts of different reasons. And so it's, it's important not to be sucked down into thinking that everything's some big conspiracy, because it's not. The time of this was, was back in 2018, wasn't it? The integrity initiative stuff. Yeah, that was in... That was in late 2018 into 2019. Yeah. So I'm wondering, what did you do in between 2018 and and 2021 here, putting out this podcast to sort of address uh, these kind of claims that were coming your way? Oh, I did nothing when it first happened. I mean, I was just like, it's such nonsense because kind of almost responding it, you give fuel to it. I just ignored it. And I mean, to be honest with you, at the time I was was moving jobs, starting this whole new career at Sky. So I had plenty going on. so yeah, I just ignored it. I, I I ignored it, but I also was like, I remember we did do a news story about it in 2019 when I found out that the National Crime Agency was investigating the hack because that, to me, was um, concrete evidence that this wasn't just some small incident. This was something that was being taken very seriously by law enforcement. So it was scary to write a, to do a story about it because I knew I'd get attacked again. But again, it's that thing of, believing in the truth and calling out people when they're you know, doing that kind of you know, malign behaviour. One of the episodes in the podcast talks about in what ways journalists and news organisations can knowingly or unknowingly get involved uh, and get pulled into this, um, into this grey zone. Uh, what were some of the things that you managed to discover on that front? It's a really interesting ethical question for news organisations. Um and it, you know, obviously it's way above my pay grade. It's for you know, the people that run news organizations. Say if information is hacked by a hostile foreign state and leaked to a news organization and it's the information that's being revealed is clearly in the public interest. Um, and yet, if you don't know the provenance of that information or you suspect it might have been a hostile foreign state that hacked it and leaked it deliberately because they knew it would damage the government, for example, or a particular political party, then, you know, what do you do? Do you still publish it because it's in the public interest? Or do you not publish it? Because by doing that, you're just, you're part of the weapon system that is being used. And you know, the public interest is such a fundamental value for, for all journalists that I think it would be very, you know, you, you, the censorship and suppression of information there, which is, again, a dangerous area. But there should really be a way to be able to, you know, if there is this information that is genuinely in the, pub, in the public interest, even if it has been hacked by a hostile foreign state in a deliberate way to try to bring down a government, how do you manage to release that information, but also get across the fact that this is a, a hostile leak 
As we hear in episode two of Into the Grey Zone, there's another threat facing journalists in the form of apparently legitimate work coming into them, but of dubious origin. In this next clip, Deborah talks to Ben Nemo, head of investigations at Graphica, a company which analyzes how information flows online, about this danger. As running fake social media accounts becomes harder, foreign states seeking to spread disinformation are accused of trying other avenues. This includes the hiring of genuine journalists to write articles with a certain slant, perhaps without the reporter knowing or caring they're being exploited. I asked Ben Nemo about this when I met him for a second time in November 2020 to record a television interview for this series, in case you're wondering why the background noise sounds a bit different. We've seen operations from Russia particularly, but, but also from Iran, trying to hire unwitting individuals. So rather than posing as an American troll online, they might pose as a Hungarian news website or a progressive-leaning website somewhere in Europe. And rather than trying to post lots of stuff publicly, they'll contact people on professional networks like LinkedIn and say, hey, do you want to come and write for us? Here's what we need you to write. And then a freelance who gets offered money to write probably going to say yes, particularly in lockdown when so many jobs have gone. And so you start writing and then the trolls, rather than publishing it themselves, they'll get you to write it and they'll get you to publish it, but they'll start doing edits. They'll say, well, we think actually the political tone here should be a little bit different. Why don't you add a paragraph here about this candidate and a paragraph here about that candidate? And, so, and then they'll publish that when it's been shaped and it's been editorialised. The threat posed by fake news is a huge challenge and requires a constant mental filter when absorbing information. Before they know it, the end product, which has their name on it and maybe their, their website on it, is actually the content of something that's been shaped by a hostile foreign state. Yeah, that's pretty disastrous, like the, the, the implications of that. Yeah, you know, people understandably want work and... Um, but, but if you're getting into those sorts of, you know, you're being hired and that's the end result of something that you really don't feel comfortable with, then what do you do? In terms of sort of assessing the direction of the, the, the grey zone and the way it's manifesting, maybe what the prognosis looks like, is it clear what the, what the future looks like of this grey zone and what journalists really need to consider? Like I find it interesting that news organisations put a real priority on ensuring that their correspondents... Um, go on hostile environment training courses um, if you're going to be sent to like a conflict zone or um, to somewhere like where, where there might be a riot just to be sure that you're you know you know how to handle yourself as best you can in those sorts of situations and you know basic first aid which always I used to find was the most useful thing that you take away from those courses I do think it would be really really good if news organizations did more to ensure all of their correspondents, not just those that are going to obvious conflict zones, um, are given training on how to deal with the hostile online environment. Um, because you know, things like being able to send emails securely, what kind of apps are the most secure to use, how best do you ensure that your phone, for example, isn't going to be penetrated and your contacts compromised, because obviously that's such a core part of, of journalism is the security and safety of your contacts. It's very interesting. Uh, it's a really good point. I think the, the thing you said before was the online environment is the is a hostile environment and, and it's um, 
wise words to live by. Do you have a kind of a key message to leave our listeners with who are journalists, who are editors and other media professionals as we think about how the grey zone might impact their day-to-day work? Yeah, when you talked about how it's evolving, I mean, it's it's definitely not going away. I mean, it's important to note that this grey zone is nothing new uh, in that these kind of activities under the threshold of war have been done by all sides for uh, arguably for centuries and um, clearly, obviously, over the last century, you know, look, just look over, just look at the Second World War, look at the Cold War, the activities that were going on on, on both sides then. Um, the difference now is technology and the Internet. So, so firstly, it's not going away. Secondly, be alive to it. Checking the provenance of information is so important. I mean, people know that anyway. Um, but definitely understanding how to keep yourself safe online. I think that's really important, too. And if you are getting trolled, if you are getting harassed, you know, make sure people are aware of that because it it can be really uncomfortable when people are um, are kind of attacking you online, and it can make you, at the very least, feel scared about publishing certain things. And we should never be scared off from doing our job by online attacks. So I guess our role in this is one, not to give uh, fuel to the flames, as it were, and give provenance to disinformation and. Uh, misinformation but also when you have that body of evidence that you can then use that to dispel harmful and and uh, pernicious narratives yeah I mean we really are as journalists on the front line of this uh, of this gray zone I mean everybody is but especially to be able to hold the line when it comes to um, truth and credible reporting accuracy um, impartiality all these things that are fundamental to a, a free democracy, uh, then you know, journalists have a really, really vital role to play. Deborah, thank you so much for all of your time and insights and thank you for jumping on the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to speak to Deborah there. But what I really take from this conversation is something pretty simple. The online environment is a hostile environment and journalists must go in adequately prepared. Threats come in a variety of shapes and sizes, they're evolving and they're not going away anytime soon. So, although it goes without saying, always seek to understand the origin of leaks and work opportunities and don't take a chance on anything devious. The clips in today's show were used with permission from Sky News and you can listen to the full episodes by searching for Into the Grey Zone on Spotify. And if you like what we heard today, we're also on Spotify as well as SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.